0: We'll be reading out of John chapter 21 this morning. For those, if you use the Pew Bible, it's uh, page 1137. If you have one of the large print Bibles in front of you, it's page 1687. Or you can pull it up on your electronic device and find it pretty quick. John chapter 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, or Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw out your net on the right side. Of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals, and there were fish on it, and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, hundred and fifty-three. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew that it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples after he was risen from the dead. You will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive till I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word.
1: Uh, fourth fourth installment of this series that looks at the life of Peter. And uh, so far we've seen some highs and lows from Peter. But I'm glad that you're here today, not just because it's Easter Sunday, but because what we look at today is the watershed moment, the pivotal moment in Peter's life. The transformation that takes place in Peter from what we've looked at the last few weeks to what we'll look at the next few weeks is like nothing you've ever even seen or heard of before. I mean, people just don't change that much unless something really impactful happens to them. I believe two things happened to Peter, and we look at one of them today. Just to illustrate the transformation for you. So that you realize just what I mean by this, of who Peter was and, and who he became. Just last week, we looked at a passage of Scripture that, as I mentioned earlier, was, was Peter's biggest failure as a follower of Jesus. And in what we, the account that we read last week and that we looked at, basically what had happened was Jesus was betrayed, he was hauled in for questioning... It was a dark night. They were suspecting something was going on. Something was brewing. They knew trouble was afoot before this even went down. And then suddenly Jesus is dragged into custody. Peter and one other, we believe John, went and made their way into the courtyard of the high priest, which was Jesus' first stop along his road to the cross that night. And... In that courtyard with the servants, Peter ended up denying that he even knew Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. And I want something just to be clear here. He was being questioned not by the high priest, not by the officials, but by servants and such in the courtyard. Now, there would have been a lot of people who were followers of Jesus in Jerusalem at that time because Jesus had a lot of followers, and they had come, everyone had showed up for this festival. It would not have been unheard of for someone of Jesus' followers to be around. And a servant, three of them, three different people in that courtyard, by firelight, mention something about, you know, hey, aren't you one of them? Aren't you with him? Peter denies it flatly. Scared for his life. But he's not, it's not like he's under torture or threat of His life or anything like that in that moment, it's just a dangerous night, a suggestion was made, and he reacted in fear. Now, fast forward, about fifty days, not even two months. It's not very long. I mean, that's less time than since Christmas, and that just seems like the other day, right? Same guy with John again. Only this time he's not in a courtyard. He's not with some servants of the high priest. He's dragged out of a prison to stand trial, basically, before the same men who had just 50 days prior sentenced Jesus to death. He's dragged in front of those same men from a prison And they threaten him to stop saying anything about Jesus. And his reaction this time is basically, do your worst. His reaction this time is to say, who should I obey then, God or you guys? (laughs) Because we can't stop talking about what we've seen and what we've heard So do what you've got to do. We're going to do what we've got to do. Now what happened in the span of 50 days to change this man from running scared from some servants in a courtyard that weren't even questioning or threatening him really to standing up boldly to the same ones who had just crucified his master, his lord, his savior, his teacher, his Jesus... And we're now threatening him in the same way. What changed him? I believe two things changed over the course of 50 days. And we're going to look at the first and primary one today. The one that completely is ultimately responsible for the transformation in Peter. Ultimately responsible for a transformation in this world that can't be explained any other way. Ultimately responsible for transformations of many of the people in this room. In ways that they can't explain any other way. And it has the power to transform you today as well. Maybe you've seen someone transformed some way in your life. You know, that kind of fundamental character transformation doesn't just happen overnight. You don't just wake up one morning and you're a completely different person than you were the day before. Though sometimes, major things happen in people's lives that do change them. You know, like... You read accounts of people that went through the concentration camps in Nazi Germany and were changed by that. People who experienced something like the World Trade Center is coming down or Pearl Harbor, things like that. Someone even who experiences great traumatic loss like the traumatic loss of a child or something like that. We see a fundamental change in people sometimes when they go through something Of huge proportions. But to change that fast. And that much. Something significant has to happen. If it's ever happened to you. Or someone you know. Then maybe you'll recognize it when you see it. In Peter. Today. Now. In the days that followed. Jesus' death. That night where Peter had failed so so miserably and so badly. We're told that Jesus' tomb where he was buried, buried was found to be empty. Some women found it. They'd gone to bring spices and instead they found an empty tomb. We're told then that there's all these kind of mysterious appearances of Jesus that kind of have the disciples confused at times and overwhelmed and, and shocked and awed. And then we're told in John 21, we're told that afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples. And we're told this remarkable account where, you know, this is between the Passover festival and the, and the Jewish festival of Pentecost, that w- where they would be back in Jerusalem again. And they had gone back home for a time, And Peter says, I'm going fishing. And some of his fishing buddies said, all right, let's do it. And these guys had been fishers of fish before Jesus called them to be fishers of people. And so they knew fishing. It was their whole life before they met Jesus. And they went out at night, because that's when you went fishing. I mean, these were commercial fishermen, all right? This was... Uh, this, this is what they did, and so they went out, but they didn't have much luck that night. And they're coming back in early, early the next morning. The sun, the sky is just becoming light. Someone calls out from the shore, "Did you have any luck today?" And they said, "No, no, no, no luck." Well, throw your nets out real quick on the other side, on the right side. Okay, <laughs> so they do it. And all of a sudden, just a miraculous haul of fish. I mean, you're catching nothing all night, and then all of a sudden your nets are strained. This seems a little familiar. They must have been thinking. And and the one that traditionally we believe is John speaks up and says, it is the Lord. And Peter, who has a tendency to jump out of boats as soon as he heard him say it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he'd taken it off while he was working and he jumped into the water. Like this guy, he said, It's going to take a while for them to haul all of these fish in. I don't have time for that. <laughs> he jumps into the water and, and goes off ahead of the boat as they're dragging this load of fish behind them to the shore. And at this shore, sure enough, he finds Jesus sitting at a campfire that he's made cooking some breakfast cooking fish now this is interesting because they they're still hauling the fish in and he's already cooking fish where did he get the fish <laughs> we don't know where he got the fish maybe he bought it or maybe he just did one of those jesus things and he just had some fish all right but he had fish and he was cooking breakfast already and he said come on join me and they join him for breakfast that morning Jesus said come and have breakfast and we're told none of the disciples dared to ask him who are you they knew it was the Lord Jesus came and he took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish now just a few days before they had shared their last Passover meal with Jesus and he had taken the bread and passed it to them, didn't he? And here on this morning, they're having breakfast. It's kind of poetic because dinner that night had been the end of something and breakfast this morning was the beginning of something. And he shares this meal with them once again, a very different sort of meal though, wasn't it? And this is so interesting because, I mean, you, you just have to use your imagination a little bit to, to think about how significant this was. Sometimes I think that the significance of the resurrection gets lost on us because, you know, we hear about Easter each year and, and we sing songs and we talk about, you know, resurrection. And those are words we're familiar with. For those disciples that day, if you can somehow place yourself in their shoes, I mean, this this kind of resurrection was not anything they had any kind of framework for in their mind. I mean, some Jews believed in in a resurrection, and some did not, and some of them believed in a life thereafter, and some did not. But there was no playbook for where Jesus was. He was off in new territory. There was no pagan playbook for this. There was no, I mean, no culture, nothing had come up with this concept before. A physical resurrection that wasn't the same as he had been before, and yet was undeniably him. This was brand new territory. And one of the best ways, I mean, one of the most interesting passages about it is this one. What a peculiar thing to write about the resurrection none of the disciples dared ask him who are you because they knew it was the Lord and time and again when you read the accounts and there's multiple accounts of the resurrection and when you read them time and again there's this weird tension between they kind of don't recognize him at first and then they do and then it's undeniable And but he's different it's just strange, you know and it's like they have a hard time explaining it because again, there's no playbook for this. there's no manual for this, there's no framework for this. this has never been dreamed up before. No one's you know there's no theologians around that have been breaking down how resurrection's going to work. Jesus shows up and he's different. and yet he's the same. They want to say it. Who are you? And yet they don't dare ask him because it's obvious who he is. It's a peculiar thing. But here's the deal. For Peter, for those that were there that day, when you witness someone die, a tragic, terrible death because that's what it was it was undeniable the death those people that did the killing that's what they are hired for and trained for by Rome, the greatest empire in the world had hired these men, as foreign and crazy as it sounds to us, had hired these men and trained them to be the very best in history at killing people slowly and completely That was their occupation. And they did it daily. On a regular basis. You don't just witness someone killed in that way. And then have breakfast with them on the beach. And it not change you. I mean, put yourselves in their shoes for a moment. And imagine it was you on that shore. You have no framework for this. You have no expectation for this. Yes, you have some kind of a hope in the resurrection. But, I mean, you're expecting something spiritual probably, right? I mean, if you expected someone you know, to come back after they died, then you're expecting a ghost, right? When people come back and they're dead, they come back as ghosts. And the disciples expected that too. And we have accounts of them saying, it's a ghost. (laughs) And Jesus says, no. Hand me some fish. I'll eat it right here in front of you. Touch me. See if I'm not real. This is no ghost. This is something new. So you don't just see someone die. A terrible, horrific death. And then a few days later, have breakfast with them on the beach. (laughs) And it not change you. Dramatically. And it certainly changed Peter. And we believe this is the reason why the same guy who had denied even knowing Jesus a few days prior would, a few days later, stand up to the very men who had sentenced Jesus and dare them to do their worst because when you have breakfast with a guy that died, it changes you. And we believe this is not the stuff of legend. This is not make believe. This is not something a story that you know Christians a century or so later made up to pull the the wool over the eyes of billions. And there's several reasons that we believe this is real. This was a real event of history. I'll share just a few of them with you today. If I took the time to share everything with you and all the arguments and cases for the resurrection, we'd be here a long time. But let me just share a few pointers with you, reasons that we have to believe that these things really did happen, that Jesus really did die and really did rise from the dead. One of the things, an argument that's often made for the resurrection is that women were the first eyewitnesses. They were the first eyewitnesses. They were primary witnesses of the empty tomb. I mean, the morning of the resurrection, the first people to realize something was going on, according to all the gospel accounts that we have, were some women who went to the tomb to bring spices. So what? So some women went to, and that, you know, why is that a case for the resurrection? Well, the thing is, that in that day, centuries and centuries ago, if you were making something up, you would not have women be the primary witnesses for an empty tomb. One of the central claims of the resurrection. Because their testimony was not even valid in a court of law in that day women you know women's rights had not yet been dreamed of okay did not exist and women's testimony in that day counted for nothing if you were going to make something up and you wanted it to sound convincing to the people of your day you would not have done so by making them the first witnesses of the empty tomb that makes no sense If you were going to make it up, you'd come up with something better than that. So we don't believe it was made up. There's also the originality of the resurrection description. And I kind of already went into that a little bit. But like I say, we have there's no record of anyone ever dreaming up a resurrection like Jesus' resurrection. Until this moment. When Jesus actually did it you know you, you know the old testament saying that's popular and a lot of people probably don't even realize it comes from the old testament but you know there's nothing new under the sun <laughs> that's all too often true you know ideas get recycled things that we think are brand new awesome ideas you know you can look back and and see in ancient history people that had the same sorts of ideas but there was no manual for a resurrection like this there was no description like this, There was no one expecting something like this. Even the Jewish people themselves who hoped in a Messiah. Even the portion of them that believed in some kind of resurrection hadn't dreamed up anything quite like this. A physical resurrection in a physical body that was also somehow spiritual. It was just different. Almost unrecognizable and yet completely recognizable at the same time. I mean, the way they describe it it's like they're having a hard time describing it. And if again, if you were making something up, you wouldn't have a hard time describing it. You would just... You'd probably go with what people were expecting. And this was not what anyone was expecting. The third thing I'll mention to you, as far as the case for the resurrection, resurrection proofs, are the early dates of the records that we have that are dated at a time when eyewitnesses to the events would have still been living. Last year we went into depth about the date 70 A.D. on last year on Easter Sunday and why that was significant in the case for Easter. And that was a huge chunk of last year's message. So I'm not going to go into 70 A.D. a whole lot today because you can still go on cypressstreet.org and uh, slash listen and, and go back to last Easter and listen to that message if this is something that interests you and you want to hear more about it. We have a good reason to believe that most, if not all, of the New Testament was written before that date. And you can find out why on there. But this year, I want us to take us to an even earlier date. Records that we have that date earlier than 70 A.D. that record the eyewitness accounts that we've just looked at today, Peter's personal experience, even, and there's a, you know, I, I mean, actually, if you were at the funeral on, we had a funeral on Friday as well as a Good Friday service. It was a, a busy day around here, and we said farewell to a member of our church that had been a member of our church for 36 years. That's a long time. To be a member of our church and and so we said farewell to Arnold Coody on Friday and as part of that message we you know we talked a lot about resurrection because that's our hope and one of those documents that we looked at was first Corinthians and this is a document you know there's historians and are there's all kinds of historians there's Christian historians that set out to prove, you know, what we believe already. And then there's the historians that set out to disprove what we believe already. Um, but, so there's historians of a wide spectrum out there. And there are some books in our New Testament that, that, you know, are questioned by some historians as to whether it was really written by this person or really written, you know, at this time frame that, the, that it pretends to be and so forth. But there are also books that even amongst the skeptics there's consensus. And this is one of those books, 1 Corinthians, where everybody says, yeah, this one's from Paul, we have no reason to believe otherwise. This is from Paul, and it dates about 53 A.D., about 20 years after the death of Jesus. And in this document, 1 Corinthians, written by Paul, a letter to a church, we have recorded one of the earliest Accounts that we have a statement of faith in the resurrection. Now 53 AD is not very long after these events took place. Most of the people who were there and saw it, most of his followers for sure, which would have been younger men for the most part like him, like Jesus, would still be alive to verify or not the things that were being claimed about the man they had followed and knew so well Jesus if he hadn't died would have been about 50 right Here's what Paul writes and a lot of scholars believe this was a you know just the way it's written it flows as a like a, something that the early church would have memorized cuz remember they didn't have bibles and things so, they had statements of faith, kind of like creeds and things like that, that they would memorize and recite and share as what they believed. Kind of like that song we sang today, This I Believe. And they believe this is one of them. And if that's the case, you know, there's a good chance this is something that Paul inherited when he first became a believer, right after the death of Jesus during the time of the early church. So, this is a statement that dates even earlier, but our first record of it. Is 53 A.D. And here's what Paul writes. He says, Now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, this news, you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And here it is. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas. That's actually the Aramaic name for Peter. That's what you know, Jesus and his disciples, it's believed, probably mostly spoke Aramaic amongst themselves. And so this is the name Jesus would have used for Peter. Cephas. And then to the twelve... After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters, the believers, at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Some have died. Now, myths and legends don't develop while most of the people there for the actual events still live. Because it's kind of hard to sell a story that people know didn't happen (laughs) Jesus' resurrection was not a myth or even a maybe it was a historical reality of which we can be confident on a level that few ancient historical events can compete with this kind of documentation for events that are 2,000 years old just doesn't happen but we have multiple documents contained in our Bible written by multiple people very early dates that testify to the fact that Jesus not only died but rose from the dead and they emphasize its, fact, its factualness because If it didn't happen, then this whole thing we've been doing for 2,000 years is a waste. There's no point to it. Our faith is in vain. If this didn't actually happen. And that's why they emphasize, the apostles, when they write their letters, they emphasize, we're not sharing something with you that we made up. These are things that we have seen and heard. We've touched the risen Jesus. And now we're telling you about him. And here's the deal. When you experience something like that firsthand, it changes you, doesn't it? It has to change you. When the man that you've been hoping was the Messiah, the man who came saying and proclaiming a lot of really fantastic statements about him coming from God and things like that, and he predicts his own death, and then he pulls it off, And you have breakfast with him on the beach. It just changes you. And here's the deal. If it really happened and it really changed Peter. Then it's just as real today. And it should change you and I on the same level that it changed Peter. Because it's no less real just because it happened in another year. Jesus is just as resurrected, just as alive today as he was on that day on the shore of Galilee, eating fish with his disciples. And if it's real, and I don't know about you, if he can pull that off, I'll believe whatever he wants to say. And if he says he's the king, then he's going to be my king. Amen? And if there really is a God and He really does have a mission that He's calling us to and He really sent His Son to die for the world because He loved the world so much and then raised His Son to life with that kind of power and promises the same kind of new life to us then let's get on the mission. And it should change us completely. We should look radically different than the rest of the world. Who cares what's on cable tonight, right? I mean, honestly, if Jesus is alive, who cares what car you drive? Who cares whether you've got enough money tomorrow or not, for that matter? Who cares? We're on a mission for Jesus because Jesus is alive. He's resurrected and our hope is not just for this life, but for another life to come. And our mission is not just to sit around and wait for Him to come, or sit around and wait to die and go to heaven. It's to go and tell the world that he loves so much about this risen Jesus and to bring them along on the mission with us. And our hope... See, I was thinking this week, and this is... I'm going off script for a second. (laughs) A lot of people, you know, they kind of believe in Jesus but they have a hard time really selling out for the whole Jesus and faith thing because they feel like this is the only life they get and that, you know, I mean, heaven sounds nice pearly gates, golden streets harps and angels and wings and singing and that's a lot of singing for eternity, you know what, what are we really going to be doing for eternity, you know and it feels kind of foreign, feels kind of weird lots of unanswered questions. This is the one life we get. And so, why do I want to spend it being so pious? You know, let's enjoy this life and worry about heaven and all that later. But the Christian hope is that we're going to have another physical life that works the way Jesus and God, when they created this world, intended it to work the first time, a richer, better, fuller physical life. Doing the things that God created us to do in the first place. We talked about that in the funeral service on Friday. The hope that we have as Christians that we've kind of lost sight of, you know, it's not just going to be clouds and harpsichords or whatever. You know, we it's going to be better than that. It's going to be real life. We're promised that Jesus is the first fruit He's the first to go. He got the first new body. But when he returns, which he promised will happen, and I don't know, he came through on the first promise that he'd rise from the dead, so I'm counting on him coming back, even if it takes him a while. And when he comes back, he says, we're going to get the same kind of body that he got. That's a physical body. That's a physical life. It's a better life than the life we have in this broken world today. So I'm going to live for that life, for that hope, This is a powerful hope that we have. And if all these things happen, like I say, why would you be worried about what's on cable tonight? There's bigger fish to fry. Why would you even be afraid of death if you really believe that Jesus rose from the dead? We should be the most radically fearless people the world has ever seen and we were we were remember peter you don't get much more fearless than that standing in front of the people that had just killed jesus a few days later telling them to do their worst or maybe you've heard of the roman colosseum the place where the gladiators played you know and that's also where they threw the Christians to be eaten by lions and such and slaughtered for the entertainment of the masses. And, you know, interesting fact, how would you like to be this guy? There were, there were doctors, scientists of a sort in that day, that because Roman law prohibited them from touching or doing anything with dead bodies after they were dead the only dead bodies that they got to do autopsies on were those, you know, the criminals and such that died in the Coliseum. And so there were people who actually spent their days running out into the Coliseum as soon as the lions went back in and finding the nearly dead people and in- inspecting their bodies. Imagine if that was your job. Man, they had some crazy jobs back then, didn't they? One of those guys, his name was Galen. And we have things that he wrote. This is from, this is about a hundred years after Peter. Here's something he wrote about Christians. Fearlessness of death and the hereafter is something we witness in them every day. Because if the resurrection is real then we ought to be the most fearless people in the world. We were in Peter's day. We still were a hundred years later. And if you look around the world today, you read the news a little bit, there's still Christians today who look pretty fearless, don't they? who stand before terrorists and refuse to deny their Savior? May we have such a faith. Is Jesus really alive? We have a good reason to believe so, based on the evidence. So many that have gone before us and so many that still yet face it today. They're not giving their lives for a fairy tale. They're giving their lives for a resurrected Jesus. The real question is, if you say yes, I think Jesus probably did resurrect, really did come back to life. The biggest question is, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with that? For Peter, here's what he did. First, he assured Jesus that he did, in fact, love him. And secondly, he committed to devote his life to his service. But that's what Peter did about it. What are you going to do about it? Let's pray. Father, We thank you for bold eyewitnesses and the bold believers who followed them, handing down the account of your son's resurrection from generation to generation. We admit that for many of us, the wonder and life-altering significance of the resurrection has been lost. Holy Spirit, restore to us the bold faith of our spiritual ancestors that we might go on to change the world in Jesus name as they did Amen